0: Father, thank you so much uh, for your word, uh, a word that reveals who you are to us uh, and also reveals uh, who we are to us. Uh, Your word is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training uh, in righteousness and we pray that you would do that in us today through this part of your word. Amen. It's not fair. I hear that from my kids all the time. Uh, Sometimes someone's got uh, more food or lollies than someone else. Sometimes someone's job is harder than the other. It's not fair. And it's not just kids. It's also adults as well. We have this ingrained sense of, uh, of justice. However, that justice really only is in one direction it would be just as true for us to say, it's not fair for me. When was the last time you complained about something being unfair in your direction? We are strangely quiet when it happens that way, but we're quite indignant when something is unfair for us. Then we want people to get what they deserve when it comes to our sense of justice we have a strange double standard going on. As we get to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah's angry in God's direction. He comes across as this spoiled, entitled child. Uh, But in that moment, we get a glimpse of the key theological issue of the book. Jonah knew that a prophetic condemnation came with the implied opportunity to repent. And that was a risk that he was not willing to take. To understand this, we need to understand the extent of Jonah's hatred towards Nineveh. His desire was to be able to sit back on his hill and watch as Nineveh was destroyed, as they got what they deserved, like Sodom and Gomorrah did earlier in the Old Testament. Now, at first glance, it seems odd that someone who has experienced such incredible mercy from God in chapter 2 is so against having it appear to others by chapter 4. And at least part of that is because we have lived in what is at least a, a relatively just society. For someone in the Ukraine right now, for whom the war is unjust in their direction, it's quite natural probably for them to want to see uh, judgment on a real enemy. That likely increases in that experience. But for us, even without hatred of that kind of an enemy, the honest truth is we live with a bit of a contradiction of justice, a double standard. We love mercy for ourselves. But when it comes to, there are others that we would rather experience judgment instead of mercy. We secretly dream of them getting what they deserve. We want what's fair for them, especially if they've wished us harm. Now, a big idea today is that God's compassion to extends to places as doesn't. This passage is supposed to stretch our ideas about God. Now, if you're not quite sure about him yet, it's really good that you're here today. I pray and I hope that you get a glimpse of how scandalous his mercy is. God is completely different from us in this regard. And if you are here today as one of God's people already, his mercy scandalised one of his own. And so I hope that you get a glimpse of what shocked And are stretched also. So, first observation today is a compassionate and gracious God. Have a look at Jonah chapter four verse one. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "Isn't this what I said, Lord? When you were still at when I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love." a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it. I knew you'd do it. You're always doing things like this. I knew that you would show mercy instead of justice. Jonah's angry. God has quenched his anger and his wrath, and Jonah's kindling his. His fear from the beginning was this exact situation, was that divine justice would suffer at the hands of divine mercy. And those fears here have been realised. He knew there was a chance that Nineveh could repent and he didn't want to risk it. The key theological issue of the book has been held back until now so that that issue comes with full force. Jonah didn't run away because he was scared of the Ninevites. He knew God's character. And he knew that God would act according to that character. The same mercy that created Jonah's praise in Jonah chapter 2, Saved by the Fish is now provoking his complaint when it's been poured out to his enemies. It's this utter scandal that God is willing to relent when those who are repentant have harmed God's own people. How can God be faithful to what he has promised to his own people if he's going to give Nineveh mercy? And so Jonah's uh, final petition is death. Have a look at verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Death is preferable than living in a world where Jonah's enemies, the enemies of God's people, are let off by their own God. They were supposed to be God's favorite people. Favouritism was supposed to go to them. How could God be faithful in this situation? He's like, a, he's like a player pleading with the umpire to change his mind. Or a kid who's holding his breath until he gets what he wants. Nineveh must die. Or Jonah must die. Surely God wouldn't kill his own prophet at the expense of them. Jonah's goal here is for God to reverse his decision of mercy. Now there's an attitude in Christianity that finds it really easy to be angry with the world. To be angry at the sins of others to be frustrated uh, against secular ideologies that are trying to impact our nation. Who would you rather see get judgment instead of mercy? Now, for most of us, our life circumstances don't lead us to a place of utter Jonah-like hatred, although there are some in this room who have lived through wars, brutality, uh, severe and perhaps silent injustice you might be able to identify with Jonah here. For most of us, it appears as a longing to see people get what they deserve. I caught myself thinking about the war in the Ukraine the other day and imagining that uh, if enough Russian soldiers died, then maybe the war might be over. Do you see the trajectory of that thought? I was more interested in justice than I was in mercy. But global conflicts are distant. That's easy. Let's bring it a bit closer to home. What about those with ideological differences? Irritating views on politics. Activists pushing dangerous aims. Social media warriors. You might not wish them eternal judgment. But you do want them to get a taste of what they deserve. Their folly to bite them. Uh, Then there's the people who have scorned us, wronged us. Is it pleasurable to imagine them getting what they deserve? For them to experience the pain and shame and hurt that we have? Yeah, it is. We want justice for them, not mercy. And we doubt the goodness of God if he chooses to grant it. The compassionate and gracious God doesn't kill Jonah. He reacts in tender kindness, wanting to bring this sulky Jonah to a sense of proper self-examination. And that leads us to our second thing, Jonah's entitlement exposed. Now the opposite of uh, thankfulness is not thanklessness, it's entitlement. Have a look at verse 4. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Now Jonah actually doesn't answer God's question. Uh, He disappears sort of silently out of the city and the suggestion within the text is that he's kind of fleeing God again. This desert sojourn reflects his spiritual state. And there he waits to see if God will relent from relenting. He's probably uh, silently hoping that Nineveh will return to its violent ways again so that God will change his mind. He's pulling for God's justice to triumph over God's mercy. So God gives him an object lesson on the universal scope of his mercy. Have a look at verse five. So Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah and to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Now just as... God had appointed a fish. He appoints a plant. And this plant is a gift of God's mercy. It seems to provide far better shade than the shelter that Jonah had built for himself. Because this is, this is a superior one out of that, those two. It provides this abundant, delightful provision of shade. And its purpose is simply to deliver Jonah from his misery which is a double-meaning idea. Delivering him from the misery of the heat of the desert is a big tick. Delivering him from the internal bitterness of his heart, well, that's still to come. The same disregard for human welfare that Jonah hated about violent Nineveh also lives within Jonah's heart. God's about to expose it fully. When mercy came in Jonah's direction, he literally rejoiced over the plant with great joy. When mercy came in his enemy's direction, uh, it literally displeased Jonah with great displeasure. Verse 1. Divine mercy provokes two very different reactions. So look at verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Just as God appoints a plant, now God appoints a worm. And it's worth noting that everything is listening and obedient to God in this book, the wind, the sailors, the fish, the Ninevites, the plant, the worm, and the wind again, except for God's prophet. Now, the worm in the Old Testament uh, comes along with images of uh, death and the human misery and the languages of a, of a military-type attack. And this is Jonah's worst fear. Relenting from sending judgment on Nineveh almost guarantees that one day Israel will experience military attack. Historically, it did. The repentant nation brought God's judgment upon his unrepentant people, Israel. And so Jonah is in the middle of experiencing the exact situation that he'd wished on Nineveh, the withdrawal of God's mercy and the execution of God's strict justice. The blazing sun is joined by another agent of God, this biting, scorching east wind, the sort of one that will dry your clothes out before you finish hanging them on the line. Under this pure justice of God, Jonah again repeats his wish to die. Now the first time his wish He would rather die than see God's mercy given to his enemies. But this time, he would rather die than have God's mercy removed from him. There's a sharp double standard going on here. He's no longer praying by this point. He's literally asking himself to die. He chooses isolation over relation, reconciliation and relationship. But even when God's prophet turns inward, God doesn't give up on Jonah. He speaks to him. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Now this self-centered response of Jonah is truer than he realizes. Jonah's anger at the sudden and unexpected removal uh, of the plant is understandable. God had extended his mercy to Jonah and then snatched it away again. It's horrible. And in that, Jonah can understand why God is so hesitant to snatch his mercy away from Nineveh after he's extended it. By taking the vine away and sending the scorching east wind, God delivers us from a vine-centred life. Now, if we're not careful, we could easily reduce that down to the simple decision of, are you more interested in your comfort or in the salvation of others? Now, while that's true, it's also very superficial. And all you'll end up doing is making people feel guilty. If that's the choice, we'll take comfort just about every time. It's what we do. We're going to need a better reason than guilt to leave comfort. Divine-centered life is not just about your desire for comfort. It's about your appreciation of God's mercy. I want to ask yourself honestly, how satisfied would you be if God's mercy was extended to you and then to no one else? If his invitation to you was to sit comfortably uh, in the shade all your days experiencing his blessing, would that be a better calling? to be safe and blessed at the expense of the rest. God removes the vine to give Jonah a chance to see just how scandalous his outward-looking mercy is. And if this message sounds similar to other chapters, that's because it is. It takes lots of times for it to sink in for Jonah and it possibly does for us as well. The plant's demise sends Jonah on this spiral of self-pity. He turns inward. God continues outward. His great desire is to send his, extend his redemptive goal to Assyria and all the nations of the world through his people Israel. The vine is not simply about your comfort. It's about the trajectory of your life. There's this now kind of old book called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. The natural trajectory of our lives, both personally and corporately, is inward. That's what sin does. We need to be regularly repenting of swinging inward. Because if we don't, we'll stop looking outward altogether. We'll care only about ourselves. Having our desires for my Christian life disrupted. Like Jonah, we need God to deliver us from the vine-centred life. That is, to turn from looking inward and having this selfish salvation that we desire to looking to God. And seeing him relentlessly looking outward. And that brings us to our final thing to observe today. And that is the trajectory for a repentant heart. Outward looking compassion. I look at verse 10. But the Lord said, you have, not, you have been concerned about the plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? What Jonah had wished for Nineveh, God has performed on Jonah. And yet Jonah's complaint makes a very uh, legitimate point that each individual is a legitimate recipient of God's mercy. Legitimate object of God's mercy. When God removes his mercy, that is tragic. But the stakes are much higher than heatstroke if God is to pour out his strict justice on Nineveh. God's character cannot stomach this request to remove his mercy once it's granted. He has compassionate concern on its 120,000 people, and even on its animals. Now, is God negligent in his reluctance to pour out his justice? Like Jonah, it's easy to assume that he is. Why doesn't God deal with Russia? Why Why doesn't God deal with the lobbyists trying to change discrimination laws? Why does the school bully have all the best stuff? Why don't they get what they deserve? Our perspectives indicate faith turned inwards. People have lost sight of the bigger picture of God's activity. Peter explains it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, actually you, not them. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The scope of God's compassion extends far beyond ours. It extended to the outstretched hands on the rough cross where his son was killed. It extended to the words that Jesus said as he died. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. It stretches us to see more of who God is. To see him as good news for every people and tribe and villain. The memory of our own salvation enables us to embrace the scandal of God's mercy, to bear with injustice now, and it is here now, and yet to respond with the same patient mercy and compassion while we wait for God to bring some people to repentance. In this, we need the message of Jonah, but also the message of Nahum. God will not bear with sin and injustice indefinitely. Contrary to Jonah's fears, God's mercy will not triumph over his judgment. The city he saves in Jonah, he later destroys in Nahum. Postponement allowed repentance. And with that in mind, I want to return to the 120,000 people in Nineveh. A few years ago, uh, a few of our leaders began speaking about 30,000 people in Kingborough who don't know their right hand from their left. The feedback we received as leaders was that we didn't like it. It just made us feel guilty. Having journeyed through Jonah, we are in a position to revisit that idea again. Is 120,000 people supposed to make Jonah feel guilty? Now, there's guilt involved. He's got repenting to do. But it's supposed to make him go, whoa. To embrace and accept this idea that God cares as much about Jonah's hated enemies as he does about God's own people. Now, I don't think we hate the 30,000. Though, look, there might be some that you hope get more justice than mercy. But for most, I suspect the best word for it is indifference. When we respond with guilt to the number, we treat them like an inconvenient disruption to our inward-looking lives. We would prefer a salvation that looked after us. God's compassion gets hoarded instead of burning within us. Our indifference is further exposed when we consider one group of people we are filled with compassion towards. Our kids and our grandkids and those who have grown up in this church. Recently, one of our staff noticed a youth pastor add and the language was filled with language of retaining the youth. We are rightly invested financially and emotionally in them. Our compassion means we are not satisfied or willing for one of them to be lost. The hint in the Bible is that Jonah had the same attitude to the people of Israel. He was an effective prophet to them. Hear Jesus' words. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We could say, have compassion, therefore. As your heavenly Father has compassion. It is right for us to have great concern for our families and the young people in our church community. Compassion in their lostness, mercy in their brokenness, desperation in our prayer. Be comforted. God's compassion extends beyond ours. But if they are the only people we have compassion for, do we really reflect God's compassion? Or are we just inward looking like Jonah? Is indifference really any better than hatred? Jonah is supposed to stretch our view of the scope of God's work and mercy. Fifteen years ago, I had a conversation with an elderly widow in South Africa that still continues to shake me. Many years earlier, her and her husband had heard a noise downstairs and her husband walked down to to check out what it was. In doing so, he he startled a robber who, in his shock, violently turned and, and stabbed him and he died on the floor of their home. Several years later, she got a phone call from the police. They said they thought they had found the man who had murdered her husband. And as they were sort of pursuing him, I think what happened is he jumped off a bridge and he died. I can still remember the deepness in her eyes as she spoke to me. How terrible, she said. How terrible that that man should die and face God's judgment. I'm still shaken by her scandalous compassion. She knew the full implications of both God's judgment and God's mercy. As his people, we are motivated by the mercy we have already received and the anticipation of the mercy that is yet to come. The size of the task is immense. If you're daunted by it, great. That's what prayer is for. As a practical step, I want to share a question with you that has um, convicted me since I read it in January. If God miraculously answered every one of your prayers this week, how many people's eternity would change as a result? If God miraculously answered every one of your prayers this week, how many people's eternity would be changed as a result? If we never even pray for people, how can we possibly develop God-shaped compassion for them? Like Nineveh, Kingborough is a God-sized task. He works, though, through his incomplete servants. The book of Jonah gives us hope as we turn our eyes to a God who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It gives us a reason to pray. It strengthens our worship as we see God's incredible compassion. It urges us to extend that compassion far beyond us. So let's join in his mission. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are a God of incredible mercy and incredible compassion. It's compassion that's been extended to us as your people. Compassion that still needs to be extended to us as your people as we continue to learn and need repenting. Father, for those here who haven't known that great compassion, that scandalous compassion where you would love and forgive even those who have hurt your people, I pray that you would help them to know it today. Help them to come to you to accept your patience while it is there. Father, for those of us who are your people but have been rather selfish in the way we've understood that, have thought that's about us, shake us with your compassion again, I pray. Extend our view of the scope of your mercy and your purposes in our lives. Set us to prayer and help us to show merciful compassion to others in replication of your own. Pray this for your glory. Amen.